Welcome to the Vineyard Northridge Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our senior pastor, Neil Haney. For more information about our church, visit our website at vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge. Two weeks ago, Dennis, uh, who you saw this morning, he led us in communion. Thank you, Dennis. That was awesome, wherever you are. Back, are you back with your wife now? That's great. Glad you guys got back together. Yeah. Um, Dennis talked about God is always at work around us. He's always at work around you. And uh, that is very true. He's always at work. Jesus says, my father is always working, and I too am working. And then last week, I talked about how God pursues a continuing love relationship with us that is real and personal. He's always pursuing us. Guys, you are in this room this morning because God has been pursuing you. I don't care if you've known Jesus for 60 years and you've been a part of this church for 50 years or this is your first time here and you still don't even know Christ. You haven't even entered into that personal relationship with him. You're here this morning because God has been working in your life since you drew, actually before you drew your first breath. From the womb, he was working in your life. And so, so God is pursuing you, and he's brought you here this morning for a reason. And then I'll be talking about point number three this morning. God invites you to become involved with him in his work. These are uh, the, the first three realities of experiencing God, and so that's what I want to talk about this morning. God, God invites us. God invites you. And he invites, the, the, the series is called Joining Him. He wants us to co-labor with him in what he's doing in the world. And one of my last sermons in, in, in uh, August was, I talked about how when we say, God, what is your will for my life? That's, that's the wrong question to ask. The, the right question is, God, what are you doing? And how can I join you in what you're doing? Because that's God's will for your life, to, join, to, to know him and to join him in what he's doing. Because God is always working in, in us and around us. He's always working in us to draw us to him, to draw us closer to him. But he's also working in, in the lives of people around us. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, I've become like my awareness of this has been heightened. In the last two and a half weeks, I have seen more of God's work around me than I think in, I have in the last couple of years. Just this week, three encounters with God inviting me into something that, you know, I was just there, I was just available, I answered the phone, whatever, and, and, and God invited me into what he was doing because he was doing something, and it's just been so awesome. You know, the, I, I was joking about this picture of Moses on the front of, of, this, uh, of this workbook, but um, Moses is kind of the... Um, uh, is kind of like the poster child for experiencing God in, in Henry Blackaby's work. And he, he talks about the story of Moses. And, and so I want to I talk about that for just a moment in terms of how God invites us to join him in what he's doing. I'm going to really try to condense the, the, the first uh, you know, book in the first two, two or three verses of Exodus. So, so Genesis and Exodus... 
I want to try to explain the context of what Moses is doing here. Actually, what God is doing and what, what God invites Moses into. So, you know that Adam and Eve, our first set of parents, the first humans that were created by God, blew it, they sinned, they disobeyed God, and plunged the human race into sin and death. And so, uh, sin and, and death worked its way through the race like, like a, like a fast-spreading cancer. It was spiritual cancer. Sin and death, spiritual cancer. And after uh, a, a, a couple thousand years, it was like... It says in, in, in Genesis 6 that God was, was sorry that he had created humankind on the earth. I mean, that was how bad things got. He created us to be his children in relationship with him. He created us to take the Garden of Eden and spread it all around the world, to subdue the earth and to multiply and to fill it and subdue the earth. And he, he intended for us to make this earth, the Garden of Eden, with children you know, generations of children living in relationship with God, but that is not what happened. Adam and Eve sinned, and so it got really bad. And God just could have wiped out the human race. He could have just wiped us out. In fact, he more or less did that in the flood. But he took a family and said, I'm going to start over with you. So he took Noah's family, and he, had, he invited Noah into what he was doing, I want you to build an ark and, and you know, that, that you, you should go down sometime to Kentucky, northern Kentucky, and go through the ark experience. You'll find out that that actually did happen and how it happened. It's, it's phenomenal. But anyway, so the human race started over with Noah's family. And then at, 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 things just kind of went south again. And so God chose a man, Abraham, and said, hey, I want... I want to take you, Abraham. You really have faith in me. You really believe in me. You're, you're the one man that, that I can use. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to raise up a nation, a miraculous, unique nation that will be priest to the entire rest of the world because through you I want to show the world what can happen in a people that will love me and, and worship me and serve me only. And I'm going to bless your children. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to bless, bless, bless. And as people see you and see your children, they're going to understand that all these other gods that they're worshiping are false gods and how I bless the people that worship me. That was God's intention for the people of Israel. And then in a, in a, in a, uh, a, a vision God gave Abraham, he said, your descendants will be Slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And Abraham was in the land of Canaan, the promised land at that point. He said, there'll be uh, uh, slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, but I'm going to bring them back and establish them in this, in this land that I've given you. And so through a series of events, and I'm not going to explain all of this. Um, someone's calling me, so I'm going to take my watch off so I don't have to answer that. Um, maybe it's Jesus calling, but I, I have the book, so you know, I don't have to, sorry. Um, so anyway, uh, through a series of events, um, there was a famine. Um, the, uh, the, the next of the youngest son of Jacob, who was, who was Abraham's grandson, uh, was sold by his brothers into slavery, ended up in prison. And then uh, Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, had this, had this nightmare about these seven 
uh, fat calves coming out of the Nile River, ca- cows. I said cats, didn't I? Yeah, it wasn't cats, it was cows. So, <laughs> so these seven fat cows came out of, of the, the Nile River, and, uh, and then seven very lean, very gaunt, very diseased, awful, uh, skinny cows came out of the Nile, and these seven skinny, sick cows ate the, swallowed up the seven healthy cows. And Pharaoh woke up from his dream and said, what in the world? This is, he was disturbed by this. He, was, he knew that it had some significance, and so he called all his sorcerers and wizards and, you know, uh, all these, you know, soothsayers and together and said, hey, I've had this dream. Tell me what this means. And this one said this, and this one said that, and this one said the other thing. And he's like, you know, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And the cupbearer of the king, he was like the king's right-hand man, and he, he was a cupbearer because he always tested the, the cup to make sure there was not poison in the cup and uh, would give it to Pharaoh then to drink. Um, I don't know why the advisor had to go through that. You know, if you had a good advisor, why would you want him to drop dead? But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, he had been put in prison for uh, a couple of years, and then uh, he had a dream, and he asked, and he was telling the dream to Joseph, who was in prison. And Joseph said, "Hey, you're going to be. The dream means you're going to be restored to the right hand of Pharaoh." And sure enough, it happened. And so the cupbearer said, "Hey, I know a guy." I know a guy. He, he interprets dreams. I'll go, I'll go get him. Pharaoh said, go get him. So he brings Joseph out of prison before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him his dream. And he said, oh, God has shown you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, what is about to happen. There's going to be seven good years where you're going to have just like a bumper crop harvest of everything. It's going to be good and plentiful. But he said, then there's going to come seven years of famine that is so bad that it's going to wipe out everything that was good about those first seven years, and, and people are going to starve to death. And Pharaoh said, oh, my goodness, that sounds, that sounds right. What should we do? And Joseph said, well, you need to appoint someone that's very wise and, and that can, can uh, store up crops in storehouses so that when the famine comes, there will be storehouses of grain and you know, so forth, and you'll have enough to eat during those seven years of famine. And he said, you just need to get somebody that's, that's going to take care of that for you. And Pharaoh says, okay, I pick you. <laughs> and Pharaoh gave him basically the entire authority over the land of Egypt. He was second in command. He went from prisoner to vice president in, you know, 15 minutes. That's how God works. And so as a result of this, what happened, what Joseph said what happened came to pass. Well, his family that sold him, his brothers who were jealous of him, who sold him into slavery, they ended up coming down and uh, reconciling with Joseph. And Jacob, his father, came down and found out that he was still alive because his brothers lied to him and said an animal had killed him. And, and so they, there were about 70 people that came down, and they were given an entire area of Egypt to be their own. And God blessed them so much that they multiplied so quickly that they were outnumbering the Egyptians. And so if that pharaoh died, and another pharaoh came up, and that pharaoh died, and another pharaoh came up, and eventually a pharaoh came to the throne who didn't know anything about Joseph but saw these Israelites 
outnumbering his people, and he got freaked out and said, man, they're, they're going to take over the land. They're coming, becoming more plentiful than us. So he did two things. He decided to call the population, so he killed all the, the uh, male children, two years old and younger, and he put the Israelites into slavery. Those are the two things that he did. Now, there was a baby boy named Moses that his mother was really wise and led of God, and she put him in this little basket that could float, and she stuck him in the Nile River in some reeds to hide him so he wouldn't be killed along with all the other male children that were being uh, killed by Pharaoh. And lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile River to take a bath. Why she picked, you know... That spot, who knows? But anyway, she comes down, and she discovers this little baby in a basket. And she's like, oh, little baby, so cute. I'm going to take him home. And so uh, Moses' mother had, had Miriam, Moses' older sister, kind of watching, you know, making sure that Moses was okay out there in the reeds. And uh, when she saw this, God gave her the inspiration to say, hey, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, hello, my name is Miriam, uh, why don't I get uh, one of the Israelite uh, women to take care of this baby? You're going you, you're, you're to be busy, and she can nurse it and all this. So how about I get someone that can take care of this baby for you? You know, kind of like a, a sitter, you know, kind of, and she, she's like, oh, that sounds like a great idea because i got to take this baby home. So she goes home and says, Mom, Pharaoh's daughter's got Moses. He's taken, if she's taking him back to the castle or the palace or whatever, uh, and she's willing for you to go with him. And so that's what happened. Moses' mom goes to Pharaoh's house, and, and she basically raises Moses, even though he's the step-grandson of Pharaoh. And so he grows up knowing he's an Israelite, but being the step-grandson of Pharaoh. And, you know, he's very, uh, he's well-dressed and well-educated, and, and he's uh, favored by, you know, Pharaoh, while all the other Israelites are suffering in slavery, he he is being treated like a prince, because he is. Until one day, he's out walking around, and he notices this Egyptian beating an Israelite. And so he, he kills him. He kills the, he just, temper flares up, and he sees one of his brothers being mistreated by this Egyptian. He kills him. He buries his body in the sand. No one's looking. You know, he looks around, and he buries him. And so the, the Israelite runs away, and the next day, he's out walking again, and he sees two Israelites fighting. And he says, brothers, stop fighting each other. He's like, you've got enough problems with the, the Egyptians beating up on you. Why are you beating each other up? You know, you need to live in peace. You don't need to be your, each other's enemies. You've got enough enemies. And they turn around, and they say, well, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Ooh, the penny dropped. He knew he was in trouble. Somebody told. And so he took off. He became, he was 40 years old when he left Egypt, running for his life. He was running from Pharaoh. He knew that he, he had a price on his head at that point. And so he was a fugitive. And he, he, goes, he goes to the Sinai Peninsula. He goes to the wilderness that he ended up spending 40 years with the people of, of God. He ends up marrying the, the daughter of, of the priest of Midian. Jethro was the guy's name. I think his last name was Bodine, if you remember. Anyway, but anyway, he... Um, the, the priest of Midian, most of you don't know that because you're not old enough. But anyway, um, he ends up keeping his, his father-in-law's sheep for 40 years in the wilderness. He goes from being 
like the, the grandson of Pharaoh to this shepherd on the backside of nowhere in the wilderness. And he spends 40 years feeding and watering and medicating and, and caring for these, these sheep. I mean, it's just like the most exciting job you can imagine, you know. I mean, he is just bored stiff, I'm sure, day after day, just leading these sheep around from areas where they can find grass to, to other areas where they, they finish the grass here so he has to move over here. And so that's where we pick up the story. During that long period, this, is, this will be on the, uh, hopefully, do we have this? All right, here we go. During this long period, the king of Egypt died. So that Pharaoh died, the one that was trying to kill him. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and, J- and with Jacob. So God looked down on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this is where Moses would later get the Ten Commandments and spend 40 days in the presence of God and come off the mountain with the Ten Commandments with his face shining. But at this point, I'm not even sure he had encountered God yet. There the angel of the Lord, and anywhere you see that phrase, angel of the Lord, that's talking about the Lord's presence. He's not just an angel. This is the Lord's presence. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. There was no smoke coming out of the top, and the leaves remained green in the fire. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I find that interesting that Though his sandals were not okay, his feet were fine. God loves us. He doesn't mind our feet being where he is. It's just the dirty sandals he didn't want. (laughs) Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. Now, look, look at this next phrase. So I have come down to rescue them. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now again, so I have come, I have come down to rescue them. So now... Go, I am sending you. I have come down to rescue them. Now go, I'm sending you. You see what's happening there? God is like, I'm going to rescue them. I'm sending you. I'm asking you. No, I'm telling you to go join me in what I'm doing. Because I'm rescuing my people. You go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, Moses was really a reluctant servant here. I, I, again, I think it's because he didn't really know God 
like he would later. He would learn how faithful God was. He would learn how trustworthy, how powerful God was. But at this point, he didn't know that. And so he was afraid. And so, you know, he made a bunch of excuses. First of all, he's like, well, uh, I don't even know your name. Like, like if they said, what's his name, what am I going to tell him? And then, you know, God said, tell him I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. My, my name is I am. Tell him I am has sent you. Well, what if they don't believe me? Well, he says, they will believe you because I'm going to perform some signs and wonders. They're going to believe you. Then he says, well, you know, I can't talk very plain. So, I, you know, I'm really like slow of speech. And God said, I made your mouth. Besides that, I'm going to send your brother with you. He'll talk for you if you need it. He really didn't need it. But anyway, uh, but, and finally, he just says, send somebody else. Just send someone else. Guys, if God calls you to join him in what he's doing, please don't do that. Please don't say send somebody else. Because number one, he's made you for a purpose. And number two, you're going to miss the blessing and the joy of being used by God. There's nothing like that. You know, when, when Jesus had gone to Samaria with his disciples and he sent them off to get food and he was at Jacob's well, and the woman, the prostitute, the lady who had six husbands and was living with a guy that wasn't her husband, came to the well to draw water in the middle of the day because she couldn't come in the morning with the women, the other women, because she was just so ashamed of herself. And Jesus met her there, and he, and he just loved on her. And he asked for a drink, and he started talking about living water, and, and eventually he revealed that he was the Messiah. He was the Savior that they were waiting for. And she was so excited that she ran home, and she told her entire village about Jesus. And they all came out, and they all believed in Jesus and, and, and got saved. It was awesome. When, when um, his disciples got back with the food, he didn't really want to eat. And they're like, Lord, eat something. And uh, he said, I, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they said, they said to each other, did, did, did someone give him something to eat? And he says this, my food, my satisfaction... The thing that fills me up on the inside is to do the will of my Father. My satisfaction, brothers and sisters, is to do the will of my Father. There's nothing like that. This past three, two and a half, three weeks, I've been able to do the will of my Father in a number of situations. And I cannot tell you the joy, the joy of, of, of experiencing that. Someone came to me yesterday morning, and uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, and they, they were in tears. And, and they, they said that these last several months have been so hard for me. And they began to kind of unpack what was going on. I said, well, God can deal with that. In fact, um, I'm just going to lead you through some, some, uh, some prayer here, and God's going to heal all that. And uh, an hour later, <laughs> an hour later, this guy was like, hugging me and cr crying, and it wasn't bad this time. It was, these were tears of joy. God, God can do that stuff. And, and this happens over and over again, and, and, and God wants to use us. You know, I, I don't want to be the, I mean, guys, I, I, this morning I'm being obedient, not, very reluctantly actually, to tell you my story, like, like Moses, from the time he left Egypt until the time he left to go to, back to Pharaoh, 
was 40 years keeping sheep, being trained how to deal with stubborn, stupid, reluctant uh, sheep that needed fed and, and water. And remember the stories, I mean, of Moses later on where he, they, they were hungry and he, they wanted meat. They got tired of eating the manna, so he had to bring the quail. And then they were thirsty and he had to strike the rock. And that things kept happening like that. Well, he understood how to take care of, of people because he understood how to take care of sheep. God was training him to do that. God works in our lives. And let me just say this for the record. God works in microwaves and, ma- and macroways. Not make, I'm not, don't, don't think I'm saying microwave. That's a different thing. God does, is always at work around you in small ways. I mean, just yesterday morning, that was a small way, although it was big for me and the person I was ministering to. It was a small thing that God is doing in this person's life and in my life. That's a micro way that God's working, and he called me into that. But then there's this big overarching thing that I'm about to tell you about because I'm being obedient to the Lord, not because I want to be the hero of my own sermon. Trust me, I don't like that. I'm not comfortable with that. But I do want to tell you my story. In 1979, how many years ago was that? 42, I'll do the math for you. (laughs) 42 years ago, I was in Richmond, Virginia on spring break. My family was all tied up with whatever they were doing. It was very unusual for me to go home and be with my family and them them not be with me. Like, we're really tight. But this particular week, God just kind of moved them out of my, my, my life, and I was very lonely, and I was uh, in Richmond, Virginia. I was, uh, I was living by myself in North Alabama. My parents and family had moved uh, during January, just two and a half months earlier. And so here it is mid-March or late March, and I'm in spring break, and I haven't seen my family in, in a couple of months, and I'm very uh, homesick for my family. And I come home. My dad's stuck in Venezuela on a job project. My, my mom's busy with whatever she was doing, and my, both my, my siblings were in school most of the day. And so I had a lot of time on my hands, and I had my dad's car. And so I just knocked around Richmond sightseeing. And I ended up in this big two-story mall, kind of like uh, Fairfield Commons. It's a real rich area of Richmond. And uh, it was like God gave me the ability to see right into the hearts and lives of people. I'd look in their faces and I would see pain and loneliness and, and desperation and, and emptiness. And it was, it was depressing. Like, I, I didn't want to see that stuff. I just wanted to have fun. I was on spring break. I wanted to have fun, you know. And so I left and I drove home and I, and I got, and I, my heart's just heavy. And I'm, I go to, in the house and I'm walking up the steps to, my, to the guest room where I was staying there, mom and dad's. And I got about halfway up the steps, and the Lord stopped me. And he said, Neil, would you help me do something about the pain you see in people's lives? And I said, yes. Yes, Lord, I would love to do something about what I just saw. But that seemed impossible to me. But the Lord said, would you, would you join me in that? Fast forward 40 years. The year is now 2019. I have, over the course of my life, been trying to learn how to minister to people in, in their pain. Uh, I, I called it counseling, <laughs> you know, trying to counsel people. And, um, I, I, you know, God, God was working in my life. I, when I was in seminary, 
studying for the ministry, pastoral ministry. I thought I was going to be, you know, being a pastor and preaching and all this stuff, and, and, uh, which I have been. But um, the Lord never forgot his call on my life, even though I sort of did. I kind of forgot about that. But my sem- uh, one of my seminary professors was a, was a pastor of a church in, where the school was, and he stepped down from the pastorate and became an adjunct, adjunct professor in the counseling department. And guess what book he wrote? Healing for Damaged Emotions. Pain in people's lives, damaged emotions. And so he was my professor, and I read his book, and I took his classes. And then my senior year in seminary, I went through depression, and he was the one that counseled me. And he helped me through that really dark time in my life. And so I graduated from seminary, and I came here, and I was jail chaplain the first year. Boy, is there pain in, 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 in the jail. And I got to love on people and lead people to Christ. And I actually had a couple of guys live with me, a couple of knuckleheads. That, that's where I learned deliverance ministry. They were addicted to all kinds of stuff. And I was casting out demons, and they would come right back because they were still doing their addictive stuff. I didn't know how to heal them. I just knew how to deliver them. But if you don't get healed, you don't stay delivered. And so they, just, they would get delivered from a demon, and, and then they would go right back into their addictions. And so I was very frustrated about that. So I came here, and... And when I was the eight years I was associate pastor, I was basically a glorified youth pastor that taught once a month and did a lot of counseling. And I found out how many ways not to do counseling. <laughs> like, it was like failure after failure after failure. I mean, I did, you know, some people got helped, but not very often and not very well, not very much. And I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed about that, but I kept pursuing how to help people in their pain. And I would read this book and go to this conference and go to this seminar and, and take this training here and there and yon. And it seemed like I got bits and pieces here and there. But a, uh, two years ago, next month, like early October, some friends of Wes and Lily's were here for the weekend. They spent the weekend you know, with them, came to church that morning. There were two sisters, a brother and a, and a sister-in-law. And they all ended up in my house after lunch in my family room. And I ended up ministering to the, young, the youngest sister uh, that was there. And um, I ended up, all these different things that God had given me through the years all culminated into a formula, into a, uh, a combination of bringing Jesus into wounds and casting out demons. That, that was the primary thing that happened. And this girl got healed and set free in a matter of minutes. I mean, it was like less than an hour. And the sister-in-law saw that happen and said, would you do that with me? Because I've been dabbling in... Uh, like going to seances and and there's some stuff happening in my house that's freaking me out. Would you do that with me? And uh, and I ministered to her and cast out some occult demons and she got free. Those girls are still free. Two months later, my sister called me. She said, I'm suicidal, Neil. 52 years old, I'm suicidal. She'd been abused as, as a child. And then in, 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 in when she was in college, she was at a frat party and a couple of, when she got a little bit drunk, a couple of frat boys did some stuff they shouldn't have done. And so she was a cocaine addict for 10 years, and, and um, she, she ended up marrying uh, basically the guy that was providing her, her drugs, and they had a child. 
Fast forward to, uh, she's now, you know, free of cocaine, but having PTSD, uh, emotional pain that she could, she could hardly live with. Anytime someone mentioned abuse or rape or anything like that, she would go into these flashbacks, into this PTSD stuff. Every night she'd go to bed medicated to the point that she was sl- almost like slobbering drunk just to be able to sleep. She would have nightmares all night. She had non-epileptic seizures, and, and she ended up with a bottle of pills and a bottle of water, and she called me and said, Neil, I, want, I don't want to live anymore, but I can't die. I don't want to live, but I can't die. And I said, Why, what, what are you talking about? She said, Jacob, her son's dad, killed him or overdosed six months earlier. They had been divorced for years, but, but, um, but her son's dad had just overdosed six months earlier. She said, if he loses me, he'll follow me to the grave. And so she says, I, I don't want to live, but I can't die. I can't take this bottle of pills, even though I want to. And that's why I called you. I just wanted you to know what's going on. I wanted you to pray for me. I hopped a plane. I was there the next week. I told her husband, I said, I need three hours with, with, with Amy. Two and a half hours later, Jesus had gone into probably nine or ten memories, healed those, those memories. Um, I cast out seven or eight demonic spirits out of my sister. The last one was shame. That was a big, nasty spirit. Fought with me. Choked her. But got, I got rid of that thing. And uh, God showed me, uh, and my sister was healed. I mean, today, she's still healed. She, I talked to her yesterday. What's funny is she called me during sermon prep. I do, I preach, you know, uh, on Thursdays. And she had called me, and I thought I hung up. And I laid the phone down by me, and she heard me tell her story. And she said, I never heard my story told by anybody but me. That was awesome. But she's healed. She's completely healed. She's so healed that her husband, three months later, said, would you come down here and do the same thing for me that you did for Amy, and I'll pay everything. And I was able to deliver him from this horrible spirit of addiction to alcohol. He stopped drinking. <laughs> and their marriage is solid. And he came to Christ. And, and they have this wonderful marital relationship now. And my mom told me two weeks ago, she said, you know, Amy seems like she's grown up in the last couple of years. She wasn't even thinking about the ministry. She said, it's like she was 15 and now she's 54. I said, of course, Mom. She doesn't have these spirits anymore. She doesn't have these wounds anymore that are crippling her. And so God has given me this this ministry, and I am trying my best to pass it on and press it out into the body of Christ. I had an opportunity. Derek Young is one of the people that I'm training in doing this integrated healing ministry. And Tuesday night, I got to sit in the, uh, the, drive, or the uh, passenger seat and watch him drive the car as we ministered to someone. And, and Derek did 97, 98% of the ministry, and he did a fantastic job. And, this, and the person we were ministering to got free from all these wounds and all these demonic spirits. It was just glorious. So thank you, Derek. And I want to keep doing that. I want to keep training people. I want to keep pressing this out. Not only here two and a half weeks ago or two weeks ago, Maybe it's three now. I was invited to Central Illinois Vineyard. There were 60 people in a room. I did the seminar. I taught what I'm talking about now to them. And uh, two and a half hours Friday night, then did a, a modeled it for them with someone on Saturday morning. And now they're going to adopt that as their model for ministry. 
You see what I'm talking about? God invited me 40 years earlier into this ministry, and now he's given me, I, you know, it, it, why does it take 40 years, Lord? Well, he was training me. He was, he was teaching me. And, and so my point is this. I mean, God is working around us in little ways. He's working in your life in little ways, in, in what may seem small ways, but has big impact long term. Every time I, I went to a seminar, every time I read a book, every time, you know, God was at work to train me to do the ministry that I'm now doing and pressing out in the body of Christ to do. Because this is what we're called to, guys. We're called to do what Jesus did, to live like Jesus lived. And so he's inviting us. He's inviting you and me to join him in what he's doing. Remember, you got to have that personal relationship. And then he's, he's going to invite you to do what he's doing, to join him in what he's doing. And please don't say no. You can live a self-centered life or a God-centered life. That's really up to you. If you live a self-centered life, it's going to be empty, it's going to be lonely, it's going to, it's going to produce little fruit, and you're not going to, you know, when you finish your race and you end your, you know, the course that you're running, you're going to realize that you're running in the wrong direction. And you're going to end up someplace that you don't, didn't want to, want to be. But if you are God-centered, if you say yes to the Lord, you will end up. Paul, at the end of his life, he told his spiritual son Timothy, I have run the race. I have fought the fight. I have finished my course. And now there, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that God has prepared for me and everyone who will do his will, everyone who will make him God of their lives. I'm just going to invite you right now to close your eyes with me. There may be some people here this morning that have not even said yes to Jesus. Like Jesus says, I want to come into your life. I, I had the privilege this week of leading someone in the prayer of salvation and, and said, do, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? And, and they said yes, and I was able to lead them in that prayer. And what a glorious thing. Like, instant, I could, I could see just the, their countenance change in an instant. It was awesome. Jesus came in, and, and the joy that flooded in behind that is just, you know, when he filled them with his spirit, it was awesome. And I just want to invite you this morning, if you have not taken that step, if you've not asked Jesus to come into your heart, to fill you with his spirit and to, and to give you life because you're dead before. You remember Dennis read, had us say uh, that we're, we were dead in our sins and trespasses? If you don't have Jesus in your heart, if you don't have his spirit, you're still dead in your sins. But if you will open your heart right now and invite him in, he will give you life. He will give you peace and joy, and he will call you into a relationship that is real and personal, and he will invite you into what he's doing. And so right now, I just if you want to take that step, would you just, everybody just close your eyes, heads down. I just, just, this is between you and me. If you want to ask Jesus into your heart right now, would you just raise your hand? Wherever you are, just raise your hand. I want to pray a prayer with you. I'm going to lead you in a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart. Would, would, you, would you just lift your hand if you want to pray that prayer? All right. You don't even have to lift your hand. You can still pray the prayer. But pray this prayer, Lord Jesus Christ. You just pray it in your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you died for me. I believe that you bore all my sin and all my guilt on the cross. 
and you nailed my sin to the cross and you shed your blood for me so that all my sins could be washed away. Come into my heart. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Cleanse away my sin. Be my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your spirit and be with me forever. Now, if you prayed that prayer, say this. Jesus, thank you for coming in. Thank you for giving me your spirit. Thank you for loving me. Now I give you my life. Take my life and use it for your glory. I want to partner with you. I want to know you. And I want to live the rest of my life joining you in what, I'm do- in what you're doing. In your name I pray. If you have prayed that prayer, I guarantee you Jesus is there. His spirit is there. You belong to him. You have life. You have eternal life. Lord, I thank you for this morning. And, and uh, I just, just want to end by just something quick here. Man, I can't believe how fast these mornings go these days. I just want to share this and, and, and throw out a challenge to you, and then I'm going to close this out. Henry Blackaby, in his, his chapter in his book on uh, God's invitation to join him in his work, he says this, God himself is the one who initiates your involvement in his work. He does not ask you to dream up something that you can do for him and then bless it. You need to know what he's doing or is about to do where you are. So he says this, take an inventory of where your life efforts are being spent. How are you investing your time? How are you investing your money? What are your priorities? And then ask yourself this, what am I presently doing that can only be explained by God's activity in my life? And if you can't think of anything, spend some time with the Lord and ask him to show you what he wants to do. What are you doing that you know the Lord led you into by an invitation to do what he's doing? That's what I want to know this morning. That's what I want to ask you. And I just really encourage you to spend some time with the Lord and and ask him those questions. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about our church, visit vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge.